Have you noticed that listening to someone else's family tree is about as intriguing as reading the phone book? And yet what Serenity David and Nate Collins have just masterfully read to us is proof that while it's true, money does not grow on trees, mercy does. As we were listening to that reading, we could hear mercy growing on the branches of Jesus' family tree. And if mercy grows on His tree, what would you give to have His tree be your tree too? Let us pray. Oh God, if mercy really does grow on trees, then what could be a better New Year gift than to discover that His tree is our tree too. And so as we climb the family tree of Jesus, please, 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 may we bump into mercy, we pray. Amen. I suppose every family tree has some surprises on it. You know, those stories and those people that you would never publish in your official family genealogy. So you can imagine my shock to discover that in Jesus' family tree, Matthew intentionally inserts seven surprise entries. That six of the seven entries have to do with sex is not the reason to be surprised. It's that seventh entry. It is the seventh entry that is really, when you're talking about mercy, the good news. Open your Bible with me, please to what Serenity and Nate just read. The Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 1. Without question, hands down, the most neglected and skipped over passage in the entire New Testament. Because when was the last time you thrilled to your reading of the begots? And yet, could it be that in our eagerness to plunge into the Gospel story, we have inadvertently skipped over the mercy stories of the genealogy. Seven surprise entries in Jesus' family tree. Open your Bible, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab that pew Bible in front of you. You have got to see what you are about to hear. And if you grab the pew Bible, it would be uh, page 649. It's the same translation that I'll be reading from this morning. It's the New King James Version. Matthew chapter 1, let's begin in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Not exactly a bestseller way to begin a book that you're hoping everybody's going to read, is it? In fact, listen to this. These are the opening words to the bestseller today, the nonfiction bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list. It's been uh, holding that place for the last 11 weeks. It, it is Barack Obama's New book, The Audacity of Hope. I'll put the words on the screen for you. Obama has written, It's been almost ten years since I first ran for political office. I was 35 at the time, four years out of law school, recently married, and generally impatient with life. And everywhere I went, I'd get some version of, Where did you get that funny name? Americans have read those first words and have bought the book, the number one book in the nation, the last 11 weeks. But what a contrast with Matthew's opening. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you know what? It is the perfect way to begin a book if you're a Jew as Matthew is and you are writing to fellow Jews who happen to believe that this is the way a life story begins. In fact, Josephus, the great Jewish historian of the first century A.D., he writes his autobiography and he begins the book with that long genealogy. Because for the Jews, being able to prove your lineage is utterly essential. Which is why, by the way, Herod the Great, we were with that king a few weeks ago, Herod the Great, who is not a Jew, he's king of the Jews, but he's an Idumean, Herod the Great, was so humiliated that his name was not in the official genealogies that he ordered all genealogies to be destroyed. Can you imagine? Family tree was everything to a Jew. And Matthew has one passion to prove that the capital H hero of his story was a true son of Abraham, a true blue Jew, and that he was indeed the Messiah in the lineage of their mighty King David. And so Matthew sets out. Look, if he cannot, if he cannot satisfy his Jewish readers, penchant for purity of lineage, there is no point in him even tackling the story of Jesus of Nazareth. So he sets out to prove that Christ was truly the Christ, the rightful descendant of the mighty King David. I want to sketch his family tree before I say another word, he writes. And so here we go with the genealogy. Verse 2. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. No surprises here, huh? Hardly a surprise at all. Why? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, all very familiar names. Genealogical branches in Israel's family tree. All in need of mercy, to be sure. But these are not the surprise entries. The first line of Matthew's seven surprises is the next line. Read verse 2 again. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Verse 3. And Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Hold her right there. There she is. Surprise number one. I say surprise since the Jews are not used to climbing their family trees and bumping into women in the branches. A Jewish male... Every morning, the Jewish man would pray, Oh God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, I am not a slave, and I am not a woman. Hallelujah. <laughs> Do you pray that prayer? <laughs> so, as George Knight writes in his delightful, very short commentary on Matthew, for a Jewish male to be climbing the family tree... And to come across a woman in the genealogy at all would strike him, like, uh, as George puts it, would strike him like a jolt of electricity. However, for a Jewish male to come across the women we are about to meet, Matthew intentionally inserting them into Jesus' family tree, would not be a jolt of electricity. It would be a bolt of lightning. In the words of the theologian of the last century, Emil Bruner, I'll put him on the screen for you. He's right, isn't he? One gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament records until he could find the most questionable ancestors of Jesus available. I mean, come on, Matthew. Where are the great dames? Where are the great matriarchs? No mention of Sarah. No word about uh, Rebecca or Leah. Even Rachel. You end up with these. Yep, he does. Read it again, verse 3. And so Judah 
begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, as we say in the English, Tamar. Now, I grew up, as our kids did, with Uncle Arthur's bedtime stories and Bible stories. And you can trust me on this one. The story of Tamar is never told in any children's book that's been published. (laughs) You know why? It's too raunchy. It's the stuff of American television today, I'm, uh, I'm embarrassed to admit. You see, Judah had three sons. And he found a lovely Canaanite girl, Tamar, for his first boy. They were married, but the boy was so wicked that Genesis declares, struck dead. Well, Judah now goes to his second son and commands him to follow the Near Eastern tradition of keeping the eldest son's line going by marrying the widow. And so his second son obeys, but because of very kinky sexual behavior, boom, he too is struck dead. Now, Judah has lost two out of three of his boys. And there is no way, Jose, I'm going to give the third boy to her. There's something up with this girl. And so what Judah does is he puts Tamar off. But Tamar tricks Judah after his own wife had died. By pretending to be a prostitute veiled in disguise, Judah hires her, goes into her, and accidentally gets her pregnant. Sounds like the afternoon soaps on American TV, doesn't it? She's pregnant with twins, thus all four of them end up in Jesus' family tree. The father-in-law who had sex with the daughter-in-law who gave birth to twins who should have been his grandchildren but turned out to be his sons. Because apparently there is enough mercy to go around. Hallelujah. Seven, seven surprise entries in the Jesus' family tree. I wish you'd jot them down. Take out your... Take out your worship bulletin, please. Tucked away in there is a is brand new study guide for this brand new series that we're beginning, which incidentally is going to be it's going to be from the uh, book of the Gospel of Matthew all the way through this teaching series. Take out your uh, thank you ushers for making sure that we get those to any worshipers who came in and said, oh, man, I, I didn't grab a bulletin when I when I came in. You're going to want these seven surprise entries. So hold your hand up. While you're doing that, we'll put a website on the screen for our viewers. Hey, wait a minute. Oh, we got, we got another screen. Before the website, I see another screen up here. This is a reminder that we're starting a brand new House of Prayer series this Wednesday night. I want to invite you to come. I don't know what you're doing Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock, but come to the Anthony Casabona Memorial Youth Chapel. Join us over there. Lord, teach us to pray. Philip Yancey's brand new book on prayer. I want to share with you some nuggets. He's very candid in his struggle to figure out how in the world does prayer not work or does it work. And we're, we're meeting for 45 minutes in the youth chapel. Come and join us Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. All right, let's put the screen up, though, because we've got viewers on television who are saying, where can I get this study guide? Here's the website. That's our website, www.pmchurch.tv. This is the very first in a brand new series, teaching series entitled Mercy Came A-Runnin'. Go to that series, click on the first teaching, today's, When Mercy Grew on Trees. Click on to study guide right there and you will have... The same study guide. Everybody in the balcony have one. You'll have the same study guide we have. All right, let's fill it out. Take your study guide right at the top of your study guide. Would you kind of give a heading to the study guide? The family tree of Jesus. Write that down, please. The family tree of Jesus. Right in the reference, Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. That's Jesus' family tree. All right? You say, wait a minute, Dwight. There are two other blanks. Yep, we'll fill those two other blanks in just a moment. But just get it down first. The family tree of Jesus, Matthew 1. 
verses 1 through 17. Okay, surprise entry number one. Here she comes. What a surprise to find her. Tamar. Mercy for the unloved. Because even when everyone else has rejected you, mercy comes a-running. Some of you here today can identify with Tamar because some of you know what it is like to be unloved. You know what it is like to be rejected. Rejected by your parents, rejected by your children, rejected by your spouse, rejected by your community. You feel cut off today. I want to tell you something. Mercy comes a-running to you just like to Tamar. And there is a place for you in Jesus' family tree. Hallelujah. Surprise entry number one. Now look. Quick succession. Here come the next five. All right. Hold on. Grab your seat. Hold on to that pen. You may know the next five. It's the seventh entry, however, that will catch you by surprise. I know you know. Most of you will figure out the next five. Maybe. Let's go to, uh, let's go to verse three again. Here we go. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. And Hezron begot Ram, verse 4. And Ram begot Aminadab. And Aminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. By the way, that's not Solomon. And it's not Salmon. He's neither. <laughs> that's Salmon. Salmon. All right, verse 5. And Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Oh, hit the pause button right there like a boat. Of lightning, there she appears, surprise entry number two. Surprise because she too is a woman, and all seven are not women, so don't be thinking these are all going to be women. Not posing like Tamar did as a prostitute. We got a real live prostitute on our hands now. This is Rahab the harlot of Jericho, the favorite professional red light madam in the whole town. And by the way, don't be too hard on those, uh, on those two spies. Very, very wise choice on their part. You can understand them choosing to spend the night in a tawdry, noisy brothel. Easy to fade off into the riffraff crowd where you, they're used to having strangers around anyway. But the prostitute Rahab knows who they are and begs them in the name of their victorious God to spare her and her family when they conquered Jericho. And they do. And here comes the surprise now. Can you believe it? By faith in God, the father of Father Abraham, this Gentile pagan prostitute marries into the line of the Messiah and ends up in the Bible's Hall of Fame, the Bible's Hall of Faith chapter. Take a look at this. This is the greatest surprise of mercy of all. Look at this. Hebrews 11, the Bible Hall of Fame. Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, the harlot Rahab. By faith. The harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Write it down, please. Surprise entry number two. Rahab, mercy for the pagan. Mercy for the pagan. Good news for those of you who consider yourselves pagans right now. There's a firestorm out there. Let me tell you over YouTube. You guys know YouTube. Firestorm right now because there, there's some young adults on YouTube who are declaring that, that because they do not believe in the existence of God, they are daring God to send them to hell. I do not believe there is a God. I dare him to strike me dead right now. And that has gone through cyberspace and the world is holding its breath. I want to tell you something. If you're a pagan, you have the right to be a pagan. But I want to warn you, just don't ever pray that kind of a prayer. But you know what? Good news, those of you who are pagans. We got pagans here. Good news. 
There's something deep in your heart that still is tugging at the back of your mind. Maybe there is. Maybe He is. I want to tell you something, my pagan friend. If you're honest as a pagan and you keep that mind as open as it is now, if there is a God, trust me, He'll come running after you. And you can end up in the same family tree that pagan Rahab ended up in. Huh. God saved her like He saves everybody else by faith through mercy. Pagans included. All right. Verse 5. Here we go. Verse 5. And Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab and Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Whoa. Hit the pause button again. There it is. Surprise entry number three. Not a surprise that she's a woman. We're kind of getting used to that now. But a surprise... Because did you know Ruth was born out of an an incestuous family line? Ruth is a Moabitess. Do you know who the Moabites are? I'll tell you how they got their start. You ever hear of a city called Sodom and a... Ever hear about a man named Lot with two girls? He had a wife once, but she turned around. You ever hear that story? Boom! Pillar of salt. Lot and his two girls end up in a mountain cave. They got saved by God. They end up in the mountain cave and the girls say, You know what? I don't think we're ever going to have husbands. So the big sis says to the little sis, Let's get daddy drunk and then let's have daddy have sex with us. I was sharing this with my PowerPoint operator, Anthony Willis, up in the uh, booth right now. And when we were going through this yesterday together, he said, oh, how sick. <laughs> You're right. It's, it's yuck. But that's what that first daughter did. She got Papa drunk. He got her pregnant. She gives birth to a boy. And that boy's name is Moab. Incestuous Moab. And by the way, it was the Moabites who snared Israel on the way to the promised land through the wily counsel of Balaam into sexual orgies. I'm telling you, sex is all through Jesus' genealogy. If you ever have, if you ever have questions about sex or struggle with sex, you got good company in Jesus' family tree. All right? Balaam snares them. Ruth. In fact, it got so, listen, listen to this. It got so bad after what the Moabites did to the Israelites, God made a promise. He made a promise. Uh, Deuteronomy 23. Take a look at this. An Ammonite. Okay, that's the second boy. The, the, the second girl's boy was Am- Ammon. Or Moabite, the first uh, daughter's son. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Watch this. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. I will never let one of them in my church. Do you understand me? Read my lips. And then along comes Ruth. And mercy came running. And get this, divine mercy overrules divine justice. Wow. Hallelujah. Write it down. Surprise entry. What is this? Number three, Ruth, mercy for the excluded. Because not even sordid family history can cut us off. Hallelujah. From divine mercy. Some of you have been abused. Some of you have been sexually abused, incestuously abused, I know, by your daddy, by your uncle, by your brother, by a cousin, by your mother. And you are thinking to yourself, that sick and sordid chapter in my life has cut me off from the family tree of salvation. Well, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Mercy came running 
to Ruth and mercy comes a running to you and you have a place in Jesus' family tree. What do you say to that? Hallelujah. Mercy came a running. All right. Surprise entry number four. Not a surprise that we're going to run into another woman now. That's not the surprise in this family tree of Jesus, but it's still a surprise because this woman will not be named intentionally. Watch what happens when she's not named. Let's read verse 5 again. And so Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed by Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And verse 6, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. In a masterful twist of style, Matthew commands now the reader's attention. It's the one story that every Jewish reader would know. The tragic tale of David and Bathsheba, an adulterous king, seducing an unsuspecting wife. But you know what? Matthew could just as easily have written, and, and, and David begat, begot Solomon by Bathsheba. But he leaves intentionally. He omits her name in a twin thrust. At the moral fall of that revered king, thrust number one, she didn't belong to him. She was someone else's wife. Thrust number two, she was the wife of Uriah, a pagan Hittite who proved himself more faithful to the God of Israel's values than the king of Israel himself did. Whoa. That all three of them, Come on, guys, that all three of them are in the Messiah's family tree is sheer mercy indeed. David, the aggressor, Bathsheba, the accomplice, and Uriah, the pagan victim. Surprise entries four and five. Write them down, please. Number four, the wife. Number five of Uriah. The Hittite. Mercy for the fallen, Bathsheba and David, and the faithful, Uriah. Some of you here, some of you watching on television right now, some of you listening on, on audio, some of you who've picked up this DVD somewhere who are, or who are at our website right now, some of you know the terrible fall and awful pain of a moral meltdown. And you have convinced yourself that there is no hope for the likes of you. There is not enough to go around to get you into that salvation tree. But just like David and Bathsheba, mercy has come a-running to you. And you, my friend, because of mercy, can find a place in Jesus' family tree. Wow. Will mercy ever top that story? I don't know. Only two entries to go. And the last one may be the biggest surprise of all. Let's go. Drop way down now to the end of it. Verse 15. And Eliud. Verse 15. Begot Eleazar. And Eleazar begot Mastan. And Masan begot Jacob, verse 16, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. There it is. Family tree is almost complete with the sixth surprise entry, who, by the way, is the fifth woman in Matthew's genealogy. Most people say there are only four. They forgot the fifth. An obscure 
peasant, pregnant teenager. A virgin named Mary. Write it down, please. Surprise entry number six. Mary. Mercy for the obedient. For the obedient. Especially when obedient meant public ridicule and ostracization. There are some of you here today who know the high price that must be paid for being obedient. Some of you have already paid that high price. I'm proud of you. You paid that high price. No matter what your roommate has said. No matter how your spouse has laughed. No matter what your community whispers. No matter what your little world thinks, you have chosen, just like young Mary, to be obedient no matter what the cost. And I want to tell you something. Mercy is so proud of you, and mercy is running straight at you with wide open arms. There's a place in Jesus' family tree for the obedient. God bless you. In an essay entitled Genealogy and Grace, Gail Godwin wrote these words. Put it on the screen. It's in your study guide, too. This is a keeper. Matthew's genealogy is showing us how the story of Jesus Christ contained and would continue to contain the flawed and inflicted and insulted, the cunning and the weak-willed and the misunderstood. His is an equal opportunity ministry for crooks and saints, end quote. Isn't that good? His is an equal opportunity ministry for crooks and saints. End quote. There's hope for all of us. Which is why, by the way, get this. I bet you didn't know this. I bet you didn't know it. This is why that there are, in fact, two family trees in Matthew. Two. Get your pen moving now. One with which he opens his gospel and the other with which he closes his book. The opening tree is intended for the Jews. The last tree is proffered to all. Keep your pen moving. The first tree is woven with begots. The second one is stained with blood. Mercy could grow on the first tree because mercy came running at the second tree. Keep writing. And no sooner does Matthew sketch the first tree, verses 1 through 17, than quickly does he promise the second tree in verse 21. Take a look at verse 21. Your Bible's still open. Look at this. Matthew 1, 21. The words of the angel. And she, Mary, will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their, our, sins. There it is, ladies and gentlemen, the two family trees of Yeshua that we remember as Jesus, who was born through one family tree that he might die on the other family tree. You can't get into the first tree. It's over. You can't get into it. But the good news is you can get into his family through the second family tree. And that's the seventh surprise entry into Matthew's genealogy. Write it down. Surprise entry number seven. Me. Me. I'm in that tree. You and me. Mercy for the sinners. Because of Calvary, we can be entries into that family tree. Are you surprised? 
You know what somebody said? Somebody said there'll be three surprises. Listen to this. There'll be three surprises when you get to heaven. When you get to heaven, three surprises. Write them down. Surprise number one. There will be people there you would never have imagined would get there. I mean, how did he get here? Huh? Where did she come from? Surprise number one. Surprise number two. There will be people not there you would have sworn would be there. Surprise number three. You're there. <laughs> you're there. The surprise ending. The surprise entry to Jesus' family tree. You're there. You should call his name Jesus. He will save his people from every bloom and sin they have. Hallelujah. Amen. Wow. Because you, you know why you're there? Because mercy came a-running, that's why. You are there because mercy came a-running for you too. Mm. So that's why, like, hey, we've got to finish this. We gotta, if, there are two blanks you left at the top of your uh, study guide. Let's fill those in. The family tree of Jesus and me. Come on, and me. This is your family tree. You're in there. Thanks to mercy. Because mercy grows on both trees, there is not a sinner he cannot save, which ought to be no surprise at all, especially after the story we now end with. We, we intentionally skipped over the story. It's in the family tree. We skipped over it because I want to tell you something. He was the baddest of the bad. And I mean, that includes King David. Worse. This guy is worse. History records him as the worst king in history. I'm talking about King Manasseh. You've got to see this one to believe it. I'm not going to put it on the screen. Nope. You've got to see it to believe it. Nothing on the screen. Go back to the Old Testament. Second Chronicles, chapter 33. It'll take you an hour to find it. Let me give the page number for those of you with the Pew Bible. Page number is 318. Give me some time, too. Second Chronicles. That's before the book of Psalms. If you're looking, Second Chronicles, chapter 33. Whoa, that's not so hard. There it is. Second Chronicles 33. Get a load of this. Seeing is believing. This is, this is the story of King Manasseh. Second Chronicles 33, verse 1. And Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned. Get this. Wouldn't you know it? One of the longest reigns in the history of Israel happened to be the baddest of the bad. Why do the bad live long and the good die young? I don't understand it. Manasseh reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But look at this, verse 2. He did evil. Whoa, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. According to the abominations of the nations, they've already, they've already cast out. He did everything they did. He tried to copy the world around him. Verse 3, oh boy, he rebuilt the high places to the demons. He rebuilt them. Verse 4, he puts, a, he puts an idol to the demon in the very heart of God's temple. And then verse 6, this is what will knock your spiritual socks off. Look at this, verse 6. And he also caused his sons to pass through the fire. That is Hebrew code language for he had sex with a lot of women. He had concubines and he kept, they kept producing babies because every time they got a new baby, they would burn that baby to death in honor of their demon God. He made his sons pass through the fire. Burned them up. I hope you're happy now. Give me another answer to prayer. You want another baby? I'll take care of that. Makes you sick. This is Manasseh. What is it, verse 6? And, and also he caused his sons and daughters to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying. Have you ever heard of the occult? 
This man is riddled to the core with the occult. He practiced soothsaying. He used witchcraft. He used sorcery. He consulted mediums. He consulted spiritists. He did much evil. The great understatement in the life of Manasseh. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. The guy is rotten to the core. And then here is a nasty, nasty word. Drop down to verse 9. This, this is an evil word. If anybody attempts to seduce you, Missy, if anybody attempts to seduce you, trust me, sister, it's evil. It's evil. The word seduce is an evil word. Watch this now. Verse 9. So Manasseh seduced Judah. The leader seduced the entire community of faith. He seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. You can't believe it. You can't get badder than that. That's the baddest of the bad. And so God says, you know what? I got the message, Manasseh. I got, hey, 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 I got the message. You don't want me. I'll back off. You wish I hadn't. I'll back off. The enemy will move in. God backed off. Assyria came in, and the, uh, what is this, uh, verse 11, it says, they put hooks in his nose. They dragged Manasseh all the way to Babylon. And when they got him to Babylon, there was a pit, the royal pit. They threw him into the dank darkness of that dungeon. They threw the man in and threw the key away. It did. And this is one of the most incredible Unbelievable verses in all the Bible. Watch this. Verse 12. You got to see it to believe it. Verse 12. Now, when he was in affliction in the bottom of that pit, you know, there's some people who say, you know, when you've lived a really horrible past, you got to pay for it. You just got to pay for it and pay for it and pay for it and pay for it. The boy is in the bottom of the dungeon and he starts he starts sobbing he starts sobbing there's no handkerchief there's no kleenex it's all over his arm he is just sobbing what have i done to my life my people my children they're dead the boy starts sobbing and sobbing uncontrollably weeping Look at this, verse 12. And now when he was in affliction, he implored. Something happened to him. Some little shaft of light penetrated that awful blackness. And that shaft said, why don't you ask me? Why don't you ask me to forgive you? And he wept and wept. And he implored the Lord his God. And he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And he prayed to him. You know what? I'm sure the prayer was, God, you can let me rot in this hell. You can let me rot in this dungeon. All I'm asking, will you save me? Will you just save me in the end? I beg of you. I plead with you. Save me. I don't know how many days God let Manasseh. Weep in his own mucus and tears. But apparently God has a sensitive heart. Apparently our tears get to God. And cut Him to the quick. 
And he said, hey, Gabriel, come, come here, come, come here, come here. Listen to what the boy is saying. Listen to him. He wants to be forgiven. Apparently, God has a heart that can be touched with our bloodshot eyes and our sobbing prayers. Some of you know what it's like to pray that way, don't you? I, say, I should say, some of us know what it's like to pray that way, don't we? Verse 13, and he prayed to him, and God, hallelujah, and God received his entreaty, and he heard his supplication. Half of the universe would say, you know what, you are so bad, there's nobody that's going to ever hear a prayer you pray again. Over. God hears that prayer. He hears that prayer. His heart is cut to the quick. What are we going to do with Manasseh? The boy is sorry. What should we do with him? And God heard his supplication. And I can't believe this, ladies and gentlemen. But mercy came running to that hell hole in Babylon. Mercy came running. And can you understand this? God brought him back to Jerusalem and into his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. There's one word for that story's ending. One word. And the word is mercy. It's what you don't deserve. But you get anyway. Somebody has mercy on your tears. Says, I'll forgive that girl. I'll forgive that boy. Bring him back. Bring him back. Ladies and gentlemen, apparently, there is no sinner too bad, too evil, or too fallen for mercy not to come running to save. You may be that sinner today. You may be that sinner today. My appeal to you is very short and simple. Like Manasseh, ask God to come running to you. And apparently, He will do just that. Apparently, Manasseh in the first family tree is proof that you and I can end up in the second family tree. And I say hallelujah to that. How about you? Yeah. Is there a sinner here? Is there a sinner this morning who needs to repent? Who needs to come to the outstretched arms of mercy today? Is there a sinner here? If you need today to step into Calvary's outstretched arms, I'm going to invite you to stand where you're sitting right now. Is there a sinner today who needs to come? Who needs to come into the outstretched arms of mercy's embrace?
Let me put them on the screen for you. You can take them home with your study guide written a hundred years ago. This beautiful conclusion. Listen. Through the goodness and mercy of Christ, the sinner is to be restored to the divine favor. God in Christ is daily beseeching men to be reconciled. Men and women to be reconciled to God. With outstretched arms. You see that there in that quotation? Mercy comes and running. With outstretched arms, He is ready to receive and welcome not only the sinner, but the prodigal. The worst of the worst. His dying love manifested on Calvary is the sinner's assurance of acceptance, peace, and love. Teach these things in the simplest form that the sin-darkened soul may see the light shining from the cross of Calvary. Hallelujah and Amen. Oh God, we stand. How could we not stand? Mercy comes running. Those outstretched arms of Calvary's family tree Holy Father, we stand. We are the worst of sinners. And so we stand. With Manasseh, we stand. For you declared that you would call his name Jesus. For he would save this people from our sins. And so we stand. Oh God, 24-7, may we now walk in mercy's embrace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.